Hello, you are listening to Homilies from Newman University Church, founded by St. John Henry Newman and the home of the Notre Dame Newman Center for Faith and Reason. Names are powerful and important things. We um, spend a lot of time thinking about what name we should give a child, and parents will go back and forth and debate it and talk about it with family members and friends and figure out how the sound pattern goes with the middle and last name and, and decide whether there is anything inappropriate that kids could tease someone about in fifth grade or sixth form or whatever you all call it. But um, in my family, there were eight, and our eight children and the oldest all had reasons for their name. My oldest brother was named after my father, uh, Raymond Frederick, not really wonderful, but uh, sure beats Gary. And they, everyone had a name, a reason, but by the time it got to me and my mom, I said, why Gary? And she just said, mm, I guess I liked it. Too many children in too short of time. But my oldest brother, Rock, Raymond, was Rock, nicknamed the day he was born and still going by that. Uh, he doesn't actually particularly like it because he wants to be Ray, and no one's going to ever call him Ray. He's Rock, and it's so powerful sounding. He was nicknamed uh, by my dad, a Notre Dame football fanatic, after the all-time winningest coach at the university, Newt Rockney. And my whole life growing up, I look a lot like him. I'd, anywhere I'd go in town, someone would say, Little Rock, and that would be me. Today we have this beautiful, beautiful story of Simon's act of faith, his statement of faith to, to Jesus as they gather at Caesarea Philippi, the very north of the Galilee. And he, Jesus is beginning to ask his followers what they think. And when, G, and when Simon makes his great statement of faith that you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that is to come. You're the one who is going to save all of Israel. Jesus responds by, in some sense, changing his name. Simon now becomes Peter, rock. This, this, this solid place upon which all of Jesus' activity will be built. What does he say to him? He says that I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. If we look up at the image of P Peter, and every time we see Peter in any iconography, he is holding keys. I give you the keys of the kingdom. And that which is bound on earth is bound in heaven, and that which is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. And it's a powerful statement of the the role that the church will play in the history of salvation. And that those who are with Peter and follow Peter, and not just his immediate successors, the popes, but all of those who follow in the structure and the, the identity of the church will have this same capacity to announce the loosing and the bonding of sins as it's always been understood. It's fascinating that this is said to take place at Caesarea Philippi. 
Philip the Tetrarch had built, rebuilt the ancient shrine to Pan. It's in the very northern part of the Galilee. In the middle of otherwise desert area, it's a deep, lush place because the headwaters of the Jordan River flow out of the rocks there. And it had been a place of different forms of worship of various gods for centuries. But several things are important about the location. It's at the foot of Mount Horab, one of the traditional places where Israel went, I'm sorry, Mount Hermon, one of the traditional places where Israel went to meet the Lord. And also in Israeli lore, this would have been known to, the, to Jesus's uh, compadres, the gates of hell were supposedly located at the headwaters of the Jordan. So here you have in this very place the sense that one communicates with God. But it's also the place where the gates of the underworld cannot hold out against the power being given to Peter. So at least in the, the, the memory and the, the, the social memory of the people hearing these statements, it was a powerful place. And what does it harken back to? It harkens back to what we hear from Isaiah today. And the direct statement of the prophet Isaiah against Shebna, who was the major Duomo, the head of the household of the king, of Hezekiah, the king Hezekiah. He'd gotten a little too big for himself. He'd built his own above-ground tomb. He walked about with the power and the authority of the king. He had the very key to the palace pinned to his tunic. He granted access to the king, and he denied access. Probably besides the king, the most powerful person in the kingdom of Israel. But... The Lord is telling him, you've lost your place, and I'm replacing you with, with Eliakim. And he will be the one who's invested with the robe, girded with the sash. He will be the one who has the key to not just the kingdom on earth, but the key to the house of David, an image of that bigger kingdom. And what he shall open shall be opened, and what he shall close will be closed. Peter is being invested with the fullness of the authority of heaven. And it's an interesting choice. A fisherman, faithful, but not always immediately aware of the fullness of what Jesus means and hopes for and wants. Not fully aware of the, the mission Jesus is here to complete. And yet in his incompleteness, Jesus also finds the kind of person upon whom the salvation of all of history can rest. In his incompleteness, we should find an image of ourselves, people on the journey, making our way. We should see that the words that we hear today in the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, are intended for us as well. 
How rich are the depths of God. How deep is wisdom and knowledge and how impossible to penetrate his motives or understand his methods. Who could ever know the mind of the Lord? God does work in mysterious ways and he uses each and every one of us in mysterious ways to help carry out his plan, the plan of salvation for all people. And it is our responsibility to submit to him, to allow him, his power to work in us, to transform us, and to help us become ever more the person he's calling us to be, and ever more the church he's calling us to be. Regularly, the idea of binding and loosing is tied to the notion of confession, that we in our lives must trip upon those moments when we fall short, when we say and do things we should not when we break the commandments, when we break that fundamental commandment to love one another, and that we need to go come before the church, we have committed ourselves as Catholics to confessing our sins. I know no one who, at least before they confess, is in love with the idea. We have to stop and recognize and admit our human failings to another human person who, acting in the person of Christ, does something remarkable. He speaks God's forgiveness. People ask all the time, well, doesn't God forgive me simply when I'm sorry? And in some sense, yes, of course he does. But we as Catholics have committed ourselves to another process a fuller process, where we hear the definite and definitive statement that God has forgiven us. And that we also receive a penance, not as punishment, not to exact some amount of, of blood or sweat off our brow, but as a means to make do, to make good on what we've done wrong. For all sin, however private, is social sin. And when we bring sin into the world, we have a remarkable responsibility to help offset it. There are many ways that this is described. If you were to drop a pebble into a placid puddle, you may be sorry for having dropped the pebble, but you're still responsible for the effects of the ripples. The little boy throws a rock and breaks a window. He may be incredibly sorry for having done it, but the window's still broken and needs to be repaired. If a businesswoman takes from the petty cash in her office every day for lunch, and comes to the realization that over the course of months and maybe even years, she's taken about a thousand euro, 1500 euro. She may be sorry for what she's done, but there's still the question of reparation. How do you make good? Whether it's returning some amount to charity, putting it in the poor box, whether it's working off in acts of charity over the course of months. These are things that can be talked through with a confessor. So that the impact of sin in our world 
can also be countered with good. The choice to rebuild. And it's not just the impact of sin, it's also to create the habit of good. It's the purpose of penance, the purpose of restitution. It is the reason why we do this as a collective act, even if it's only one and one, one priest and one penitent. We do it because we are striving to be ever more completely the person God is calling us to be. And we do that as church. We celebrate with the words of forgiveness, the new life that has been found or the life that has been renewed. And we call each other to be ever more fully the body of Christ. In this parish, there are few regular opportunities for confession. There are many locally, but uh, starting this week, on Thursday, after our morning mass or our noon mass at about 12, uh, 1.30, we'll be having an opportunity for confessions. On Sunday, uh, starting next week at 5 o'clock, we'll be having an opportunity for confessions regularly. And this is an opportunity for us to open our hearts, to overcome that reticence to say what we've done and to invite God's grace in. I know a woman who worked in an RCIA program uh, and she had come through the program herself as a, a um, former Lutheran. And she used to talk to the people coming into the church about how right at the last minute before she was received into the church, she went to the priest and said, I can't do it, I can't go forward with this because she had to make uh, her confession. And he said, well, what's wrong? She said, I've done so many things that I'm, I'm not proud of and I could never speak them. I couldn't say it aloud. And she laughed and she said, uh, he said, like what? So I described something to him and then I described something else to him and then I described something else to him. And then at the end she said, I just did it, didn't I? He said, yeah, you've, you've done it. She said, well, if that's what it is, I can do this a lot. The beauty of confession is not simply to say it, but it's to let it go and to allow the fullness of God's words of forgiveness to wash over us and to know that we have each and every time we go to confession been renewed in the power of the keys that the church is active out of the, the authority granted to St. Peter to bring the healing touch of Christ to bring God's love into our world and to help us to be channels of that grace in all that we say and do with family members, friends, co-workers, and to bring Christ's healing peace to all of creation.